0: Oh, Thursday evening, almost the end of the week. Callum, almost there. Another game to look forward to. How are you doing?
1: I'm, I'm all right, mate. Yeah, I'm I'm good. You sound like you've had a rough day. You, the words you're saying are optimistic, but the heavy heart and the, the sigh with which you say it gives off a different, uh, different impression, mate. Everything all right?
0: Everything's fine. It's just one of those weeks where you're sort of just stumbling towards the finish line. It looks within reach, but at the same time, you're thinking still go get through another day.
1: It has dragged a little bit this week. I I, I feel most weeks recently I've been it's been flying by for me. I've, you know working from home, but no, I'm I'm good in good spirits. <laughs> Weekend is upon us. Uh with that brings another game. We're just off the back of three points. I'm well in the Christmas spirit. I don't know about you mate. I'm a I'm a Christmas man. I, uh, you yeah, I've got I've got the decks up and everything and I'm uh, I'm looking forward to doing some last minute shopping. Best time of the year for me. The
0: light point of today was I was in charge of uh, doing a team Christmas quiz, so I did put that together and it seemed to seemed to go down well, which is all good. We got the tr- <laughs> we got the tree up, we've got It's strange like this year is one well, of everything about this year seems strange, but it's nice to get a bit festive, definitely. I'm definitely a Christmas person. I love the festivities as it were. So, I, uh,
1: you're, uh, I can't believe you guys are doing a Christmas quiz on what is it? The eleventh of December today, uh, when we're recording.
0: With the week that it has been, a Christmas quiz was needed to lift everyone's mood
1: <laughs> Perfect. You were the you were the uh, the guardian angel then.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. But Callum, I'd, one thing I've realised is that we haven't actually. I mean, we've been doing for the la- we've been doing the pod for the, like the last few months, different episodes, different stuff. I realised you and I haven't actually chatted. About the actual stuff on the pitch for a while. About football. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. we've chatted about everything
1: but. You're right. We're uh, we're we're chatting about Christmas now. Before we even talk about any of the matches, over all of our listeners are enjoying what's going on on the pitch at the moment and uh, are, are in fine spirits. During the week for Christmas and then come the weekend for what Ralph's lads are doing on the pitch but you're right we had that kind of little stint where uh, we couldn't do the podcast so we were writing up everything in terms of football and then the last couple have been sort of with guests and, and things like that we just recently recorded our 1-11 to all time as as voted by you guys on Twitter. So, uh, yeah, that one's still to come. So they're, they're coming thick and fast. What would you say we get into it?
0: I think that's a brilliant idea. Let's actually chat about some football. Uh, well, without further ado, my name's Tom Murray.
1: My name's Callum Wilson. <laughs> this is Under the Lights, and we're off again to Kingston Corner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, so uh, here we are, king to the Corner. We've spent a, bit, a fair bit of time here recently, but without talking in too much detail about what's going on on the pitch. So, I mean, you can you could never get away with calling a Samson fan a glory hunter at all, but we must be quite the opposite because we seem to have plenty to say when it's going wrong, but it's been going so, so right recently.
0: I don't think it can really go any better. I mean, yeah, we were top of the league and now we've sunk down to fifth. So, you know, what it has and doing. That's quite a slump there and I'm sure fans of other teams would be calling for his head, but no, we don't get that kind of liberty.
1: Yeah, and after the lowest of lows against Manchester United, had been 2-0 up at half time and a real deja vu. They seem to do it to us at St Mary's all the time, albeit they seem to be doing it to everyone away from home at the moment by Leipzig, who they had a good crack at. So, um, yeah, yeah, we got over that and the boys showed some real character on Monday night in a game in which we came from behind ourselves.
0: I was really impressed, actually, with Monday night because, I mean, let's be honest, that first half, up until Vestergaard deciding that... He was going to be a god amongst men. It was pretty rubbish, if we're being completely honest. That first half,
1: it was from our perspective. I thought Brighton uh, by far the better team. I, I think they dictated the play. They're playing a lot of the way in which they played reminded me of what we've been doing so well this season. Obviously, without the formation, they play obviously play three at the back. But they're just the intensity and and the the high press we really for the entire first half didn't get to grips with with what they were doing against the ball, and we struggled really to to get our passing game going, which has been so vastly improved so far this season. And I know Harsen has mentioned it time and time again. that That's what he's been so impressed with is our progression in passing. We've been so neat and tidy. Not on Monday. Went behind to one of two penalties. Probably the, well, definitely the least controversial one. I still don't know how to explain what James Ward-Prowse was doing. But I think he, he's just, he's so busy all the time. I think he runs in there. He has to change the way in which he's moving to kind of get, get his balance with his arm like that. But it almost seems to me like he's kind of getting ready to appeal for something. Either way, you can tell he has no idea where the ball is because uh, his his head's facing one way, his arm's up in the air, and the ball kind of just brushes his fingertips. And I know with the with the new handball rule, that is handball. It's maybe just not one that I, I agree with. I know it's in a dodgy position, but just by the fact that the ball barely kind of touches his hand, you know, it, it rests on it. Doesn't really make too much difference as to where it's going. But that was given. And Saints off really to the worst possible start. And it was coming. Brighton were far the better side at the beginning.
0: They were. Actually, I've got a simple solution for the reason that he does that. Clearly, he's seen the injured Adam Lalana in the stand. He's had a little wave at him, his old mate, just <laughs> to see how he's doing. And um, he's fallen, fallen asleep. I agree with you that in the old handball rule, yeah, that is a bit harsh. But in today's day and age that was always going to be given because it, his hand and, and I know he I don't think he's got his bearings he doesn't exactly know where he, any limb of his is actually going and what direction it's going but I mean it's a pretty the, the ball has hit him well and truly on the hand and it's as you said of the two penalties of that of that night not very controversial and you know Brighton I think could have been a goal up by that time that penalty happened Welbeck had a really good chance and a, a better striker would have finished that. You say how Brighton reminds you of us. Do you, they remind you of us basically what we may have been like if we didn't have Danny Ings in such good form? Maybe we'd huff and we'd puff, but maybe not have that clinical edge. Do you reckon he makes that much of a difference? Or do you think that overall we just have better quality, but they just have the similar style of play?
1: I think before Danny Ings' injury, we might have argued that case, but we didn't really struggle without him in front of goal. Che Adams, I think, is better than the options that Brighton have got up front. I mean, without going into too much detail of Brighton, I think I think Brighton fans are sick and tired of the opposition and pundits and everyone saying how well they played um, and how their performances don't reflect the their place in the table and the, how many points they've got and blah, blah, blah. But, but points reflect um, what's going on on the pitch. And if you can't score more than the other team, then you're in a bad place. And I think that's the problem for Brighton. Strangely... Their defensive record isn't great uh, when you consider how many defenders they have on the pitch, uh, especially against us when they have Ben White playing in central midfield as well. They're, they're littered with defenders. And I think that means they've got good midfield, but I think I think that takes away in the end from what they've got up top. Not much potency and obviously the issue with, with Malpie, because he, he he seems to think he's he's uh, a far greater player than, than he is, seems to have a bit of an attitude problem and, and Graham Potter's been dealing with that. But you know the signing of Danny Welbeck is, is a really clever one and, and it looks like he's um, you know injury permitting. He's going to be a good buy for them, but he's not prolific, uh, neither is Connolly. And then you look at it and they're relying on Pascal Gross to find that form from a couple of seasons ago and, and Chossard to do some bits. So, yeah, I think, I think from Saints' perspective, to stay in it at half-time, was important to weather that storm was pretty vital and you always felt despite that we were playing pretty poorly that we wouldn't you know Brighton weren't going to run away from us and as you said that, that Vestergaard goal came at such a good time and it was such a terrific goal and really reflected what a colossus he's been so far this uh this season.
0: He's been an absolute monster and I just one really quick point just to add to the fact that Brighton's defensive stats are not that not that great i was really surprised to see actually that matt ryan has an awful shot save percentage this year he's on course in oh, the league
1: isn't it worse than league.
0: Than, and he's on course to do even worse than kepper's season where he did absolutely awfully i think that was last season and I, that really surprised me because i think he Last season, he was one of the better keepers in the league and has made some fantastic saves. But obviously, that must be a confidence issue for Brighton, knowing that with their their keeper not making any saves, that if they do concede, they're going to really struggle because and we don't want to make this an episode all about how Brighton played because that's, that's not what we're doing. But you're right, you take Malpai's goals out of the game and then you're struggling to see who can be a even close to prolific scorer for them. But yes, someone who is being prolific this season, but Yannick Vestergaard, Callum.
1: Yeah, he is. And, and, and to your question earlier as well about Danny Ings, he is vital to us if we want to try and stay in the kind of upper echelons that we're in. But without him, uh, we, we have more... Then Brighton half up front. And that's the point I'm trying to make with the likes mm-hmm. of Che Adams with Armstrong and, and the midfield. We've got, and we've got goals from midfield now. Gineppo, you know, is getting there. We've got options off the off the bench. And of course, Theo Walcott is, is looking good as well. So we've got a plethora of options for when Ings, isn't there? However, when you add someone the the caliber of Danny Ings, he, he gets points on his own, um, in terms of a, an attacking perspective. But at the moment, the big Dane at the back, the Great Dane, is looking like he's going to get us points on his own because uh, he scored another header. I think that's three goals for the season already, and I was I was so impressed with that header. I mean, it was perfect. I, I, at first, I thought the delivery from War Prowse was clearly deliberate, but at first, I thought, oh, it's not one of his best because it was. It was high, it was curling away from the goal. And actually, when he headers it, he's a good sort of, what, 12 yards out, maybe a little bit more, just in front of the penalty spot, near post. So I think it's not the easiest place to header a ball from. But then he went and did it and popped it in the, in the top corner over Matt Ryan and, and proved, us, proved us wrong. It's funny, actually, just before that, I said um, to my mates who were watching it, literally before that set-piece, said, I don't think we're going to get much from set-pieces because they've got so many big lads brighton but it doesn't really matter when we've got the biggest one on the pitch does it
0: <laughs> it's such a good header and the way you describe the cross is absolutely perfect because i yeah when it came in it looked flat it looked high it looked like it was you know it was going to be a wasted ball but obviously big yannick has got his forehead on that used his neck muscles to power it into the far top corner And as you said, you can't really ask for a much better header than that. And I think, I mean, it's been said countless times over social media, through pundits, that Yannick Vestergaard, yes, last couple of seasons, he has been a bit of a liability. But this season, he has been utterly superb. And we thought that Salisu was going to come in and take his place immediately. Obviously, He's had his own off-field problems, but at the moment he's going to have to do well to even get past the current two.
1: Yeah, I think Bednarak will eventually be the one to move. Does still have those those errors in him? They've been they've been fantastic um, since the since he came in in the third game of the season and made that partnership. And we'll get onto it more when we kind of preview the Sheffield United game later in the in the episode. But there are one or two things against the ball that still worries me and still uh, still I think still a weakness. In the way that we play. I think it's deliberate, but it involves the centre-backs. But let's talk about the rest of the game. I think by the time that goal came, Saints were starting to take control. We were starting to uh, get a bit of the ball. I think Brighton were retreating a bit. Set-piece, as it has been, so vital for us in recent games. Then in the second half, another good good half from both sides, but I, I felt like Saints were definitely more in the, in the game in the second half than they were in the first. And then um Kyle Walker-Peters, gets on the end of, of one of those excellent diagonal balls. this time with the left foot of Vestergaard again and draws a foul. And I don't know what your thoughts were on it, but it was a VAR controversy. It took a bloody long time for them to make their minds up. And even by the end of it, I think it was difficult to say whether it was or wasn't.
0: It was a really difficult one. And Sky were obviously uh, licking their lips at that one because, you know, with an extra hour to go after the game on the Monday night show, that's something that could fill. And Jamie Carragher was certainly, certainly wanted to uh, to talk about that as much as possible. I don't know if I'm being completely honest. I still don't know now. I thought that, it, obviously, a fantastic ball from Bestegard. It looked from the first replay that he had fouled him outside the penalty area that's in real time and then you look at the replays and he gets a nudge in the back and you're thinking is that where the foul is that the foul that he's given and then you look closer and uh, there is the coming together of the knees and it does look maybe that it's just over the very it's sort of like the apex of the box isn't it it's the corner of the penalty area and whether he's whether they deem because the angle they used as well all the angles don't they they all provide a different picture it's really difficult to conclude what's actually yeah. happened so if he's not if he's deemed it therefore that the push on the slight nudge on the back is not a foul but the coming together of the knees is then if the knees are on the line then that's a that's a penalty but it yeah.
1: I think they dealt with it. I think they dealt with it in the wrong way. I think people are talking about the clear and the obvious, but that that doesn't come into this because this is a factual decision. Is it over the line or is it not? Is it inside the box or outside the box? You know, is he offside or is he onside? There's no interpretation. The referee deemed it to be a foul. Now they've gone to VAR. To see whether it's in or out of the box, and like you said, it was so difficult with all those angles to actually get a definitive answer. I know what you're saying, and other people have said that there are two contacts. For me, the second one isn't a foul. Carl Walker Peters kicks um, Solly March on his way down. If you watch it, he's uh, he's not going to. Clatter into him with his legs until he until Carl Walker Peters moves his leg. So for me, that's not a foul. What and the problem is that if VAR is saying the second foul is the one that they're giving for a penalty, then surely that has to go. They make it made a good point, I think, on, on um, Monday Night Football that that then has to go back to the referee to look on the pitch side monitor because it is then subjective as to whether foul two is a foul. I don't think it was. My personal pers- point of view on it is, is that there's a push outside the box when it starts, but it doesn't end until they're into the box. So if you, if you look at someone who's pulling someone's shirt on the way through and they start pulling their shirt outside the box and they don't let go until after they're inside the box, it's a penalty because the foul has continued and you're not going to give a free kick when you can give a penalty. So in my opinion, Solly March has got the wrong side of him. He's lent into him, pushed him with all of his body weight, which is why he falls over. Starts outside the box, yes, which is what the ref gave it for, but it's a continuation into the box. And that's that's for me why why it is a penalty. But it's such a difficult one. I think I think the main argument is because it was so difficult to give, don't give it, go with the referee's initial point of view. And and that's and that's the thing, is that the referee Gave the foul outside the box. And the other, the other thing I thought with VAR, and it throws up a different scenario and a different question each week, is referees give fouls outside the box that they wouldn't give inside the box. So if that coming together happened obviously inside the box, I wonder if the referee would have given it at all for a nudge, you know, a heavy nudge, but a nudge altogether. So once he's given that free kick. It's then down to to VAR to decide, not whether it's a foul or not, but whether the contact's inside or outside the box. So, yeah, I might be a bit biased, but if the contact continues into the box and there's a penalty, although if that was given against us, uh, I wouldn't be particularly happy. But it was given, and after four minutes of moaning and checking and looking at the big screen and all the rest of it, Danny Ings, The longer you stand there and wait, the harder it should be. But Danny Ings, having been away, uh, you could consider him rusty. Certainly wasn't. Put it right in the corner. Inside netting. Great celebration. And, uh, And back on the score sheet, which is great to see.
0: Yeah, it was a brilliantly taken penalty, especially after, as you say, all that time that he spent waiting and, you know, nerves would have got to lesser players. But he just... The thing about Danny Ings at the moment, and we can we can say the same thing every single week, but he has so much confidence through himself and belief in himself. He knows that he's bloody good at the moment. He knows that he's going to stick that away, and I think that just quickly, last season when he took that penalty against Bournemouth, that was completely unlike him. And obviously, then he took another one afterwards and smashed it, apart, smashed it past the keeper. He's got confidence flowing through. He's been. I mean, he was in interviews. We had what we heard from updates was that Danny was walking, trying to get back as quickly as possible, saying, Yeah, I'm fit, I'm ready to train. This is a guy who wants to be back on the pitch, he wants to be scoring goals. And it's going to be really, really exciting to have him back and have that confidence flowing again. Not that we've been awful without him, but he just adds another dimension to the exactly. attack.
1: Yeah, yeah, he improves us. Um, and, and I was really impressed. I didn't know what to make of it at the time, but I was really impressed with the fact that Harson huttle made the sub at half-time. Considering that we've gotten back into the game, we're coming back on a level playing field and, and growing into the game. I was um, I was surprised. I thought he'd give it 10 minutes. I think Gianepo being booked didn't help his cause. But yeah, it's 1-1. We haven't been playing well. And at half-time, Danny Ings is there, ready and raring to go. And, and that's a proactive substitution from um, from a proactive manager.
0: And I think with the confidence in not just scoring but also being involved in the build-up play was the fact that that 1-2 with Nathan Redmond where he flicked it up then back-heeled it through to Redmond that would have honestly probably beamed down for goal of the month award had it gone in if Redmond hadn't skied it. He just ad- he, he, he,
1: definitely, he definitely set it up for himself though. That wasn't for Redmond. He, he tried to flick it over his head to get onto it and Redmond obviously came in but yeah he's um he looked back at his his best it maybe took him 20 minutes to get involved in the game but you could argue the same you know for, for che adams and other attacking players weren't really in the game for for much of it and and yeah one one thing i did want to add a bit off off piste but it makes me laugh who does the bookings at sky and why why is freddie youngberg in the studio you talk about jamie carragher earlier I wondered, uh, are Arsenal that bad that Freddie Youngbo said, I'll come in, but I'm just doing a game you can't get anyone else for? because he, he has nothing to do with Saints uh, at Albion.
0: Well, actually, if you think about it, he does. With Arsenal, Brighton and Arsenal are now in a relegation battle, <laughs> so... He's looking at, you know, their their rivals down the bottom and he probably was silently fist-pumping underneath the, uh, underneath the table and Ings put that one away to say, yes, we're not moving down to 16th.
1: So uh, we're talking about Ings and on the agenda is the the, the news or the rumour that's going around that both Ings and Bertrand are close to signing those contracts. We mentioned it uh, in a previous episode, um, how vital it is. You don't want to be losing another player. You know, is it is it about money? The, these contract negotiations have been going on for a while with their agents. It sounds, it hasn't happened yet, but it sounds like there's um, positivity going around towards the pen to paper for two really important players for us. How significant, if we can get that done before Christmas or before this run of fixtures... Uh, Bertrand but especially Ings to really send out a statement going into those fixtures in fifth place and try and get ourselves maybe into the top four by Christmas
0: well I said at the end of the transfer window in October that one of the best signings of the summer or the best bits of summer activity was the fact that Ings was still here after a 25 goal season we that and as we keep on saying we have a good team we know we have a good team but it helps So much to be put yourself above the other teams in and around you in mid-table, or those maybe pushing for a Europa League spot. When you have a striker like that up front, that sets you apart from the other teams. And if we were to get that contract signed, not have this sort of I'm ananaring about where is his mind, what's he thinking? Is are we even? If if he doesn't sign, are we even talking about January, etc. For him to then sign that, and that will. That would just give the whole team a lift for the fans, for the whole club to have that bit of news. It would be a massive statement of intent to the league that th- we've made it to fifth, we're going to try and stay there. We're going to try and finish as high as we can and we've got the power now to keep one of the best players in the league.
1: Yeah, and the other the other standpoint you could look at it from, same with Bertrand, is you know, we know that contracts don't actually mean that much when it comes to uh, players at St Mary's. There's a bit of a different feeling with... Danny Ings being a, a homegrown boy. But what it does mean is that if we do find ourselves needing to get rid of a player, not getting rid, but if someone does come in for him and and, and he does need to go, that we're going to get a lot of money for him. Whereas you do, you want to avoid a situation, maybe a or Hoiberg or someone like that. And the same same for Bertrand, you know, he, coming, his, his contract's ticking, time running out. You don't want to lose him on a free or for you know, six, seven, eight million with six months left on the contract. So if we can get them both signed, that'll put Samson in a really positive position to start looking forward. And with a couple of signings for the squad in January, that could, that could really put us in a great place for the second half of the season. Really quick question, mate. But in- say
0: hypothetically, Ing signs a long-term deal. What do you then value him at?
1: Uh, it's a hard question because I, don't, I, I think he's indispensable to the club. So I'd, I don't think there is a value for Danny Ings for what he gives us. That's yeah, that's like saying how much how much is Jack Grealish worth to Aston Villa. Yeah, you could just put a scary number on there just to frighten potential suitors off. But from my perspective as a fan, and I'm not I'm not running Southampton Football Club from a financial perspective. But I'd like to think that if we sign him on a long term deal, that means he's our player. That that, that doesn't just boost his price up. But under the current ownership, yeah, who knows? Who knows? You you, you get an offer of, of 60, 70 million for, for that player. Is it, you know, it going to be out of the hands of uh, mm. of the likes of, of Hasenertal and, and some of those helping run the club? So, you know, money talks, we know that at St Mary's, but let's hope that this this positive rumour turns into positive news and we get a couple of our key top players signed and uh, our veteran players, because they're important, obviously, on the pitch, but also for, for others around them, both Bertrand and Danny Ings. Let's talk a little bit then about what, we weren't going to talk about this, but it, it kind of goes on to it a bit. I mentioned January and uh, maybe a couple of signings. What was good to see on Monday before the game, compared to the game uh, against Man United, was our bench looked really strong. It, it looked strong because Redmond was back on it. It looked strong because Ings was back on it, and it looked strong because Salisu made his first appearance in the matchday squad since we signed him in the summer. So, suddenly, those three players coming back gave us a real look of a good squad. Problem is that it only takes a couple of injuries, and we go back to having half the academy on our bench as we did against Man United, playing with the same tired team for 80 minutes, um, reluctant to bring anyone on. So if we do get through this Christmas period with sort of unscathed, but also having picked up some points, I still think it would be a really good, solid move <laughs> to bring in some players that not only can challenge the first team, but you know, they're there for the squad. They're there for rotation as well. full yeah. fullbacks specifically being one. You know, constant talk of certain fullbacks who can play both left and right would be perfect. But just to give us that competitive edge to try and push us because if we do get to January and we're in and around where we are now, first first half of the season done, what can we get a chance to to really take the initiative and make the most of the good start in January? But yeah, it was really good to see Solisio on the bench, as you said, amongst others. And if the squad stays fit, we could be in for a really exciting season.
0: I think so too. And it reminds me a bit of when we had that brilliant first half of the season under in the 14-15 season, where we got to December, a bit of a slump in December, then we picked it up again as we got to January. And then I remember we got to the window. We clearly needed to have uh, some more players. And then we brought in Alia and Juricic, Juricic
1: who, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you laugh and you just think... Not exactly players that were brilliant, and then I know going off piece Kuman Then absolutely love the Alia Pella and Juricic combo up front, and everyone else is just thinking, "What are you doing?" But uh, go, going back, if we are in and around the position we are now, and we get in some good signings in January, then obviously you don't know if they're going to be a hit. And hindsight is a wonderful thing, but I mean, yeah, as you said, it's going to be a really exciting second half of the season, but. Before we get to that point, we've still got December to get through, and we have the most banana-skinned of all games coming up on Sunday. <laughs> fans are coming back, fans at St. Mary's, a team bottom of the league who cannot buy a win. I mean...
1: <laughs> set up for, a, for a, a downfall, isn't it?
0: Absolutely. It's set up for a 90th minute ollie McBurney off the arse in and
1: no no it, w- it, w- it will be the dave mcgoldrick or more likely billy sharp they oh, always yeah. come back they always David, come back to horn
0: they do they do can i mean first of all having fans back is absolutely wonderful we've seen even even for the brighton game it enhanced the atmosphere it made it great it, made, it brought back a sense of normality what i think fans need to do on sunday is they need to be patient we yeah. they are not and not expect us to take the lead in the first minute sheffield united as bad as they are on the table are still i mean i mean it's like with brighton their their play has meant that they're getting applauded for their play but then their their t- position on the table is false sheffield united's position on the table isn't false but they're still a damn difficult side to get through and a lot of those defeats for them have been by one goal margin it is going to be a grind on sunday
1: yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. And they'll come to St. Mary's to stop us. They're not gonna come at us. They're they're resolute, they're strong, they're organized. And you, and don't forget they're a team that was in the position we were in in last March when when lockdown came in. It was only afterwards that they really um had that terrible run. You know, they were looking at potentially getting in the Champions League. If <laughs> you don't lose that overnight. Now <laughs> they've gone from that to is it just one point in the first ten games, eleven games, and it's the worst start in Premier League history. I don't I don't know what to pinpoint that on. I'm not a Sheffield United fan. <laughs> but what I do know is that, as you said, they will not be an easy nut to crack. And Saints fans, you could be forgiven for thinking this is the best Saints team we've had for five years. We were top of the league since, you know, since, since we were last there, we've created ourselves the third best away record in the league. We had an unbelievable post-lockdown yeah, project restart, whatever you want to call it. We've been top of the league. We're playing great football. We're now winning games at home. And as you said, we're facing bottom of the league. So we're turning up. First game back It's going to be a party. We're going to, you know, we're going to win 5-0. You know, that's not going to happen. And we've got to be patient, but we've also got to get behind the boys because I, th- I feel like it's going, to be, it's going to be a lot of what we used to see when we were in the stadium of ball back to the centre-backs, across the back four, into centre midfield, bit of pressure, back to the centre-backs, back to the goalkeeper, keeping the ball. And that is part of the way haas plays. And that's what we're going to have because I don't think you're going to get much pressure on, on the back four from Sheffield United and I think they're going to be resolute. I'd love to know what your thoughts are on the correlation or maybe coincidence between our home form at last two seasons when fans were there and our home form this season and back in the last season since the stadium was empty. Do, you know, is it fair to say that Southampton's home form is worse when fans are there and and that's partly down to the fans? There's certainly a correlation. I think it can't be pinpointed on the fans
0: alone because let's not forget these are the same fans that were there when Kuman was trouncing everyone in the league when we were beating Man City 4-2 when we were coming from behind to beat Liverpool when we were playing fantastic football when we beat Sunderland 8-0 you know we were we have had gone through phases of being solid at home good at home let's not forget for the past 4 years awful management like the team has been
1: yeah but uh, but are we anyone could be a good set of fans when your team's winning eight nil mm. and when you're beating sides but are you know is st mary's sometimes not hostile but uh, impatient as you said and and were we spoiled by those years and since have it, having gone from that to such negative crap football and and losing games is it, is it different? Do you go to St Mary's or did we go to St Mary's in the last few years thinking this is going to be a tough game? Whereas before, we were going there with the expectancy to win. I mean, uh, you know, on that logic, we might go back to where we were because I think Southampton fans are going to go to St Mary's with more optimism than we've had in a bloody long time.
0: I think you can say that uh, because, you know, you know, when we came out of those sort of glory years, as it were, fans' expectations, were, it was a bit of a shock to suddenly go... I mean, it only took one... It only took one season for the transition from challenging for uh, European football to suddenly battling relegation and fans' expectations have suddenly just gone straight down and you're thinking, what on earth is going on here? I agree. I think the feeling around the whole club at the moment, I think this is, I saw a tweet, I cannot remember who it was by, but it's... how I feel at the moment I feel this is and it's strange because fans haven't been to the stadium but I think this is probably the most unified the club and the fans have been in a really long time and yes as you say it's easy to sing when you're winning etc but the club are getting off the pitch the club are getting everything from the sounds of it they're getting everything right on the pitch they're getting everything right and I think the fans are going to be incredibly excited you're just worried possibly that we talk about Hasenhutl's style of play where if they don't see an opening forward they we, they will recycle possession and go all the way back to the centre-backs and then start again and that's where the Carl Walker-Peters um, opportunity came against Brighton where we just played it back and suddenly there was an opportunity to play it forward. It's a case of if it's 10 minutes gone and we're finding Sheffield United a tough nut to crack you just worry are there going to be groans moans when we play it back to Vestergaard and Bednarik again trying to find a way through that's what you worry about and maybe you think will you actually hear those when there's only 2,000 fans in the stadium yes you will you will still hear those because even when there were no fans in the stadium you can hear pretty much a shout you can hear Adam Blackmore commentating in up in the stadium probably from as a player And I feel that, yeah, with fans, I I worry that you don't want to, the players don't want to feel suddenly that huge sense of pressure, but I think confidence is so high within the group now and that they got the win after that agonising defeat to Manchester United. If we'd lost to Brighton or maybe drew with Brighton and then suddenly we're going on a bad run of form, Sheffield United, you're thinking moans and groans because we haven't taken the lead after five minutes. There could be that frustrating because you're like you're in a fantastic position. Don't throw it away. But we're coming off the back of a whim. Ings is back. It's a game <laughs> because it's a game that we fans are going to expect to win. And as a canter, that's just not a good combination, really.
1: Yeah, I think it's I think it's lazy and probably easy to assume that fans there was a causality with our up upturn in form because fans weren't there. I think, as you rightly said over the last few seasons it's been pretty dross and that has caused the fans at times to get a bit fed up because we know we know what we're capable of as a club and you say the club has started getting it right off the field I think it's going to be a real positivity and a real boost when um, not when the club but when the players necessarily need it because we're doing so well already but even more so to drive us at home to to more points because everyone's going to be so happy to be back at the stadium those 2,000 fans uh, uh, Christmas has come early for them. I think they're going to be there in good voice, whether they should be or not. Um, and I think there's just going to be a general atmosphere. Even when you hear people talking before the game and, and when they're training and just the players are getting ready, just that murmur, it's just something different. It's something closer to to the norm. I think the fans are going to be happy to be there. I think they're going to be happy to see a side that is playing well, up close and personal. And... I, I think at times they, they'll they drive the team on. And you've got to remember, it's hard to support a team um, and be, be upbeat when you're constantly losing games at home and under certain managers playing badly. But you've got to remember the times where we did get those wins and they meant even more. And the the kind of unity that you said and the atmosphere at St. Mary's was absolutely rocking at times. And you just remember remember the end of some of those games with Carson Hirtel come in and start sort of Throwing his arms up to the crowd and uh, at the end of the game, and there's a real, a real togetherness, and I think that's going to carry through. Yeah, the worry is just if old habits creep in when we're passing the ball around our back line, and maybe if we can see the goal. But I don't think that'll be the case. I think we'll it, it will be difficult. It will take patience, but an early goal is perfect against Sheffield United because then you have to draw them out, and that's when we can start playing our football. We like to bring teams onto us at the back. They aren't going to come out and do that. They'll try and hit us on the break, I would think. So, yeah, fans back is a major positive for the club. And they've got the kind of monkey off their back. (laughs) I think when we had that streak where we weren't winning games, that becomes something that gets in the players' heads, gets in the crowd's heads. And and it's not down to the crowd. It was just down to the fact that we were playing poorly for a number of years and our confidence was low. There was a time, every time we took the lead, we'd give it away and end up losing games under under sort of Hughes at the beginning of, of uh, Hustonuttle's reign. So, yeah, I think it's a positive when they come in and I think it's going to be a kind of a fresh start and we are winning games at home and the fans are going to be eager and itching to get into St Mary's to see a winning side.
0: They really will. And from... The people I've seen people on Twitter go, posting about how excited they are, how happy that they've been chosen to go to St. Mary's and how excited they are. We talked about the fans. Let's talk about the game itself from yeah. sort of a tactical point of view. Do you start... We've got... Well, let's th- think. It's the first game of three in a week. You've got yes. Sheffield United at home. And then you've got trips. You've got a trip to Arsenal before Manchester City at home. Now, on paper, Sheffield United and Arsenal are the ones that you're thinking we should be able to pick up points from.
1: <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? Because yeah. I, I look at those three fixtures and think, right, well, we need to beat Sheffield United because Arsenal and Man City are tough, <laughs> especially Arsenal away. But yeah, we'll come on to Arsenal at a, a different time. But yeah, you're, you're right. Yeah, but we can. Um, I mean, Sheffield United is certainly the one to win. But, you know, you, I'd back us to win at, at the Emirates at the moment.
0: I actually am of the, same, I'm of the same opinion. And I think not only can we win at the Emirates, I think we can win well. Um, that's just the way that Arsenal well, are as a club at the moment. But let's talk about the, the game on Sunday. I think you start Danny Ings. I
1: think... Uh, oh, as lo-
0: I think yeah. as long as he is fit... I mean, we if it fit, and even if you have to take him off after the hour mark or something, you start Danny Ings because whilst you've got games coming up in the week, those are not guaranteed. Those are nowhere near guaranteed points. The only game that should matter is the one that you've got in front of you, and we pick up three points, and then maybe Ings starts from the bench against Arsenal or something like that. I think, I think you, start, you, yeah. start with, you start with Ings and I would possibly, I think Armstrong has looked really leggy recently and I'd have Walcott out wide. Or maybe, you know, I'd actually I'd start with Walcott and Genepo and keep Armstrong and Redmond as options off the bench.
1: Yeah, I think, I think Danny Ings has to start. I think this is a game for Danny Ings because it's going to be, I think he's going to provide for us what Man United were missing until Cavani came on. When you're trying to break a side down, Like Sheffield United, you need someone with the intelligence in the box to find the space and and Danny Ings is is the man to do that. You know, this might be a tight game by which Danny Ings is the one who follows up a shot uh, that comes off Ramsdale or that just gets in the near post with a quick bit of movement and turns in a cross. Dennings is our is our fox in the box for that, and he's our most creative player. So he, I think it's imperative that he starts. Three games in a week is going to be a stretch, especially for him and the likes of Armstrong, who who you know always struggles to play three games in a week. We can't really comment without knowing Dennings' physical situation, how he reacted to forty five minutes on on Monday. I mean, this is this game is Sunday, so it's six six days ish, because it was Monday night, wasn't it? This is midday on Sunday. So, yeah, I think he'll play. I think the wingers are somewhere where we, we will rotate over the coming weeks. I think the back four and the goalkeeper will stay as they are. I think you can you can do that, certainly with centre-backs. The way the full-back role is at the moment, they're getting up and down the pitch. They do need a rest sometimes. However... Right now, I don't think we've got the backup in those areas, which is unfortunate. I don't see... Well, Warprowse is going to play every minute of every game. I don't see Romeo getting dropped at the moment. I think we might see Diallo coming on a bit earlier. Uh, we might see him coming on around 60, 65 minutes rather than getting 5 or 10 at the end. But, yeah, I think I think Gineppo struggled against Brighton. He seemed to be able to beat one man, but they did really well at doubling up on him. with, uh, I think it was uh, Veltman over on that side coming to help out. But, again, you're probably right because... We need creativity, and I was thinking maybe Redmond will come in for him and Walcott will, or Walcott will play out on that side and Armstrong might might start. But I think I think Gineppo probably is the man to start because if you're trying to make something in a tight situation, Redmond, although he, he can do that, I think Gineppo is, is much more unpredictable and, and a better one-on-one. So, uh, yeah, I could see maybe a couple of changes, but I wouldn't expect too many. Uh, from the side that won
0: no I think um, it, not too many changes because I think that it, it's, it's weird it's weird to say in, that against uh, against a team like Arsenal this is a game that we can pro- maybe try out something new and rotate but I actually think that Genepo against Arsenal would be perfect I think that he's the kind of unpredictability that at the moment their defense is really not dealing with very well and I feel that maybe even having Diallo at the Emirates as well It's strange. I'm, it's almost, I'm looking at the game at the Emirates as by no means like a guaranteed win, but I'm actually looking at and thinking I'd be disappointed if we don't win.
1: I think Danny Ings will probably be rested in that game. If you think back to last season, and Arsenal did a brilliant job of really maintaining the team throughout the <laughs> Christmas period. And there was, from memory, there wasn't a great deal of uh, of change if you recall, when it comes to that Boxing Day game that gets wedged in, you get three games in a week. Uh, we rested Danny Ings away at Chelsea. Now, they weren't the greatest team at that point, but we still won without him, uh, quite convincingly. And I can see that being a similar game at um, at the Emirates. I think Danny Ings might be rested, dropped's not the word, be rested after coming back from an injury. Three, days, three games in a week, I think it's too much. So I think I think that will be the game for him to 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 be rested. I think Adams and I'd you know I'd, I'd maybe even look at playing long in that game because like you said, the defense the confidence isn't there. So let's get on top of them early. So a uh, uh, Walcott returning to his old team. So yeah, I'd I'd say maybe Ings for being dropped for that one, being rested. But generally, I think the crux of the team will will remain the same. I just I think the wingers are the ones that we rotate usually. With Walcott, Redmond, Armstrong, and Gineppo, with the option of of Walcott obviously being able to play up front as well, the rest of the team pretty much stays as it is. What I was going to get onto earlier when we were talking about Vestergaard and Bednarak and what a what a great partnership they've been, is that it might not be it might not be the case against Sheffield United because I don't, unless they have Brewster, I don't see them with too much pace up front, <clears throat> too much attack and threat generally this season. But what I don't like in the way that we're playing, and it puts me on edge and, and it happens over and over again, is that there seems to be, and I've heard uh, Bednarak, I think, talking, it seems to be a, a, a deliberate attempt from our centre-backs to attack the ball and press the ball. And, and leave their position at every given opportunity. And that seems to have been dropped into them by the manager in the way we're playing. And I know that we we set traps up, up the other end of the pitch, and that's all fine. But what I continue to see, and we are getting punished against the bigger teams, happened with Vestergaard against Man United, happened with Bednarak when he got turned by Werner against che- Chelsea. What we're finding... And it includes when Bednarak goes on those little mazy runs because he's got fantastic feet and brilliant. And he's done really well. But when we lose the ball, he is miles out of position. And what it does happen, and and it was happening against Brighton when we weren't playing well, was they will dive in when the ball isn't there to be won. They're late. The striker lays it off and there's a huge gap to be attacked. And when Vestergaard and Bednarak are found running back towards their own goal that's not when they're at the strongest. And that's when I feel we need Salisu. So I'd like that out of our game because we've got such hard-working players in front of them. I don't think we need to make take such risks and make it so difficult for ourselves because Benrak's done that a few times. What was the game? It wasn't the last game, maybe the game before where he um, he came racing out and completely air-kicked the ball, uh, tried to put it into touch, and he completely missed it on that right side. and uh, And they were in. Who did we play before Brighton? It would, it would have been Man
0: United, I think. One of their first half I think
1: chances. It, I, think, I think it was the Man United game. Yeah. Um, I think it was second half. Yeah, he came, he came running out and he completely air-kicked the ball, essentially. Missed it and they were in. And uh, I just don't think maybe that's, that's the game for the likes of Vestergaard and Bednarak. Mm. And that's where we find... With our, with our full-backs <laughs> so high up the pitch, we don't have any cover there. Um, and that's where we become susceptible not necessarily going to be an issue, I don't think, against Sheffield United unless their counter-attacking game uh, really steps up on Sunday. But certainly against Arsenal with Aubameyang and Lacazette and, uh, and other pacey players they've got, and especially against Man City, we could come undone. So I do see eventually Salisu coming into the team. For Bednarak, unless uh, unless we we eradicate those kind of errors,
0: yeah, I have to agree. And I again, the Emirates is another place where I reckon we may see Salah make his first uh, first appearance because while the players may be physically fit. It's also how mentally fit they are, and you've got three games in a week, and Arsenal and Manchester City are going to require—I mean—and Sheffield United as well. All of the games are going to require a huge level of concentration, and maybe it would be a good time to blood Salisu in because we've bought—we've obviously bought him in from rave reviews from Spain, and. You know, this is a player that we were expecting to walk into the team whenever he was fit. The fact that Vestergaard and Bednarik have been so brilliant this season means that that hasn't happened. But this is definitely a player that we've not bought as a squad player. This is someone to be one of the Southampton mould, as it were, the Southampton way over the last few years.
1: Yeah, you say that. It would be interesting. I'm not sure it will happen on Sunday because we've just come off the back of a good win and you don't really change centre-backs around. But I just wonder, with three games in a week, if he is looking to bring Salisu in for one of those games, and the problem they've said, you know, fitness and all that, but also him learning our style of play, which is which is definitely an education. I just wonder if playing bottom of the league, where you're going to spend most of your time in possession, most probably, I, I just wonder whether he might use that as a game to blood Salisu, so so he's, so he's not sort of rabbit in the headlights and, and isn't thrown in at the deep end, if you know what I mean mm. um, Arsenal might also be considered in the relegation battle as being one of those sides that you could maybe blood him, and it is the middle game of the week but I, yeah, I just, I just wonder if if, if he is going to use him whether that is the game of the three. How do you, how do you see it going then before we, we sign off on, on Sunday? Because you've got Sheffield United, desperate, desperate, desperate for a win. Southampton, desperate for a win for completely different reasons. Uh, we want to we start making a charge into that top four. Right now, and uh, and give ourselves less less work to do when it comes to the end of the season. How how do you see it playing out? Frustrating.
0: Uh, I think it's going to be a really close game, and unless Saints get an early goal, I think it is going to be a very close encounter. And Sheffield United are going to be a really difficult team to break down. I don't see Sheffield United scoring. I reckon, if I'm being, honest, I reckon one or two nil to Saints, uh, and maybe that second goal if there is a second goal coming late in the second half when Sheffield United start to push players forward
1: a la aston villa last season <laughs> that kind of
0: that kind of game kind yeah of, game. of course they could surprise me and you know with this current saints team we may with ing's back it may be one of those games where you know what we're going to we're going to put out another statement and we're going to win four four nil i don't see that happening but it depends if we get an early goal if we get an early yeah, goal early goal
1: changes, changes early goal.
0: Early goal changes the game. I can see, if we do get an early goal, I can see it being a really good, solid performance and good win. Not that a 1-0 wouldn't be a solid performance. Um, I just think that... I, I think it will be a win. There we go. I think it will be a win. I think it will be close. Uh, but it all depends Sheffield
1: United, on... Sheffield United have got... They've obviously got us away on Sunday. Then Thursday, they've got Man United at Bramwell Lane. Then the following Sunday, they've got to go to Brighton. Then they've got Everton at home. And they've got Burnley away. So there's no game there, really, where you think, ah, pinpoint that one to get the win. Because their home games are against tricky sides in Man United and Everton. And then maybe if they had a Brighton or a Burnley at home, you'd think, ah, six points are a great opportunity. But those are then the away games with crowds back in. So I think you know, we, we will take it one game at a time. And I'm sure Chris Wilder's side will as well but all eyes on st mary's on sunday for the return of those 2000 fans i'm going for a saints win you have to you can't be that pessimistic surely i think it will be tight i think danny ings will get himself on the score sheet again and uh, and yeah i think we will uh, we will grind out a 1-0 win by the end of it we'll have chances few chances few and far between it'll be a tough game and it might be a slow game but those 2000 fans Get behind the side and uh, and win, lose or draw. It's great to have fans back in the stadium because that is what it's all about. It
0: is. It is absolutely brilliant. We can't wait to hear. Oh, when the Saints go marching in, ringing around St Mary's Stadium. Let us know what you think the score is going to be on Sunday. Comment below when we get this uh, when we get this episode out. Uh, if you want to find the podcast, you can contact us at under underscore Saints on Twitter. You can find
1: myself at T214Murray. Yep, yeah, and you can find me at Callum Wilson 21 Thank you very much for listening. Uh, enjoy the rest of your week and uh, let's hope for a win on Sunday. And to all those fans that are going, uh, stay safe, uh, look after yourselves and uh, we'll speak to you soon.